Song of Solomon, chapter 3. Now, you know, most uh, of you have, are, are married or have been, or, uh, you know, so a lot of what, we're te- what I'm teaching is based on, you know, those that um, are planning to get married, and, and I wish there would have been more young people, but God knows, um, you know, uh, who he wants to minister to. But uh, for those that have been married, are married, you know what? Use it and learn it, and, and maybe God wants to use you to tell somebody else, to cheat somebody else. So uh, hearing God's word is never uh, a waste of time, and though sometimes we may think, I know all about that. Well, you know, God knows that we don't, and so uh, may we use it for his glory, however he uses us to do that. Song of Solomon chapter 3, and I title the message, A Bad Dream, or uh, uh, like the Bible says, A Troubled Night. Now, when I say bad dream, that's not talking about being, getting married, okay? So, uh, it's, uh, don't jump ahead of the story, okay? Uh, see, see how your mind's, oh, yeah, boy, was that a, was that a bad night. But anyway, or a bad dream. Uh, King Solomon had gone back to Jerusalem. Remember, he had said, he had talked to the Shulamite and said, you know, come away, let's get away. Well, he'd gone back to Jerusalem now, leaving his beloved at home in the country. And look at verse 1, it says, By night on my bed, I sought the one I love, I sought him, but I did not find him. Now, this is the Shulamite woman, she's speaking through the whole chapter. But the phrase, by night on my bed, suggests that the experience that she was describing here took place in a dream. You see, when a person loves another person deeply, it's only natural to be afraid of losing that person. And chapter 3 is about a dream that she had before they were married. So let's look at verses 1 through 3 of chapter 3. And she says, By night on my bed I sought the one I love. I sought him, but I did not find him. I will rise now, I said, and go about the city in the streets and in the squares. I will seek the one that I love. I sought him, but I did not find him. The watchmen who go about the city found me. And I said, have you seen the one that I love? So again, she's asleep that night. And, and night after night, she was having this dream about the one that she loved. And she, 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 in her dream, she thought, I'm going to get up and I'm going to go looking for him. And she said, I did, but I couldn't find him. I went wandering through the city streets at night. And, and, and I looked for the one I love, but I couldn't find him. And then the guards that were patrolling the city, they saw me, she said, and they asked me. And she asked them, <clears throat> have you found my lover? Again, true love will cause you to dream about the one that you love. The Shulamite woman goes to bed one night and she has this dream about her beloved king, Solomon. Now, again, when he asked her to come away with him, she hadn't responded to him. She hadn't responded to her beloved's request to come away and spend time with him. And now her conscience might be starting to bother her. So she had this dream about her beloved. A dream that was so real to her that when she woke up, you know, she put her hand out to reach for him, but he wasn't there. It was just a dream. But to her, the dream was so real and clear that it really shook her up. And it left her wanting to be with him. And we could... Maybe all of us can say, if not, you know, most of us, that we've all had dreams like this before. You know, you're in that deep sleep and you wake up from that deep sleep. You don't know where you are. You don't know what's going on, what time it is, or what's, what happened, you know. 
and, and then the Shulamite tells us about her crazy idea here. She says, you know what? I'm going to get up. It's late at night. She's going to go searching through the streets and the, and the marketplaces, and she's going to search for him. And, and it says that she went everywhere, but she couldn't find him. Now, think about what she did. She gets out of bed, got dressed, and she went out while it was still dark. And she starts roaming around the dark streets of the city looking for the man that she loved. She searched the highways and the byways by herself in the dark. She was driven by the love that she had for Solomon. But it wasn't a very smart thing for her to do. You know, thinking she could find him in the city late at night. Now, did she forget about how dangerous that was? And the danger that was lurking around every corner on a, on a city street at night? How in the world did she ever think that she was going to find him all alone in the dark in a big city? But you see, her loneliness and her desire for him and her love for him drove her to do something that was really just flat out foolish. And we've all heard how love makes you do foolish things. Now, you might say, oh, how romantic that is. Oh, you might applaud her for, for her deep love for him, but you have to shake your head and say, not smart. That was not a smart thing to do because it's the first time that she has let her passion, that is her feelings, get the best of her, overcome her common sense. And even with the Lord Jesus Christ, there's nothing that he treasures more than a heart that really loves him. And hungers for him and wants him. Nothing pleases Jesus more than those daring and crazy things that we do for him to show him our love. This is the kind of love that makes people go to the ends of the earth to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. And to prove their love for him. You know, they will go to places to serve. You know, they go to places that that are dangerous for preaching the gospel. And the saints will go to help people. You know, we've seen them, we've read about them, missionaries who have gone to deadly places, to places with deadly diseases. And they haven't thought about their own health or their own, their own selves because of their love for the Lord Jesus. But here's the thing. The Lord Jesus will never ask us to do things that are foolish and that compromise his word or our testimony, our witness for him. Jesus knows and he understands temptation way more than anybody else. And if you remember back in chapter, uh, Matthew chapter 4, Satan tried to get Jesus to jump off the top of the temple to show how much Jesus trusted in God. But that kind of thing isn't faith. That's foolishness. There, there's, there's a thin line between commitment and common sense. And the Shulamite woman had commitment, but in this particular situation, she didn't use common sense when she decided to wander around the streets of the city late at night. Now, it's true that we do need more commitment from people. We need to be willing to do great and daring daring things for God. Like George Mueller, who stepped out purely by faith to start an orphanage for children without a cent, without an idea where he was going to do, where he was going to go, how he was going to do it. It was all by faith. And if you haven't read the book on George Mueller... The Life and Prayer and Faith of George Mill. It is an amazing book. And you know, I've, I've mentioned a while back, but I would encourage you to read that book. But again, he stepped out purely by faith. But there were two principles that guided George Mueller's faith in his work for God. The first, 
George Mueller never did anything without spending long periods of time in prayer. And the second principle, he never acted in a way that was contrary to the known and revealed mind of God that was laid out for us in the Word of God. You see, God never asks us to act in a way that's contrary to His Word. Nor does He ask us to move on impulse, to move quickly, hastily. Isaiah 28.16 says, Whoever believes will not act hastily. Hebrews 6.2 says, Imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Faith and patience go together. They work together. True faith does not get in a hurry. We never look in the Bible, read anywhere in the Bible, and we see God rushing around. Never is He rushing around in Scripture or is He worried about time. We have to trust in God's plan and His timing. People who would work with God must first learn to wait on Him and to avoid all necessary, you know, rushing around. Remember, God kept Moses waiting 40 years before He sent him to deliver the children of Israel from Egypt. He took Saul after he got saved, and he withdrew Saul of Tarsus three years into Arabia before he sent him as an apostle to the nations. And, he left his, and, and the father left his own son 30 years in obscurity before he was manifested as Messiah. Again, our God is in no hurry to put other servants to work. God says to all patients, my time is not full yet come, but your time is always ready. In other words, we're ready to go now without seeking and without knowing what and where we're going to go. Whenever we're thinking about some plan of action or a plan that calls for a quick decision to be made, we need to remember that it's the tempter, the devil, who puts the pressure on us. He's the one who says, hurry up. You need to do something now. He's the one who insists on hurrying up and making a quick decision. Again, you have to do something now. You better not wait any longer because you might miss your chance. And you may never get another chance like this one again. So he puts that pressure on us. But don't be tempted to make impulsive decisions. Quietly and patiently wait on God. Because God never pressures us like that. God is patient And he leads his children gently to make right and wise decisions. Our job is to take the time that we need to make sure that we have his mind and his will. And the great rule to remember is this. Whenever you're thinking about taking some bold action for God, remember it is the principle of patience. Psalm 37, 7, rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Hebrews 6.12, imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And again, we have the example through Abraham in Hebrews 4.20-21. Abraham did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God and being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was also able to perform. You see, the Lord wants us to love him with a hungry love and with a love that will truly do daring things for him. But he wants us to show that love in line with the word of God. And we can be sure that Solomon wouldn't have approved of what she did that night. Of that dangerous midnight venture through the streets of the city if he'd known about it. He would have been the first one to talk to her out of doing anything so risky and careless. So the Shulamite woman tells about her frantic search you know, and of her foolish idea. 
She said in verse 3, the watchman stopped me. She's out there in the street late at night. She's looking for Solomon. And she says, the watchman stopped me. The guards stopped me as they were making their rounds. And, they asked, and she asked them, have you seen the one that I love? Here she was, again, roaming around the streets late at night in the city looking for her beloved. This foolish and dangerous venture put her in all kinds of danger that night that she might have run to, uh, ran into in that city. And here's the other thing. What do you think the watchmen were thinking? First, they might have thought she was a prostitute. And even though there wasn't a purer-minded woman than she was in the whole land, you know, what, what were they thinking? But to be picked up at night on the city streets by city guards put her in a very compromising situation. But notice, she did a smart thing when they arrested her. Right away, she told them, hey, she asked, hey, have you seen my, my beloved one? She knew what she was doing. Have you seen the one that I love? And she tells them about how he loved her and she loved him. And it seems that they let her go and maybe even took her home. But can you imagine what they were thinking? Another thing, we should never do anything in a way that would ruin our testimony or call it to question. Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 5.22, to abstain from every form or appearance from evil. Not only out in the open, all right, uh, but... but uh, out in the open air and heresy, they're both to be avoided. But what anything that even looks like it or carries a suspicion of it or might be an occasion for evil or lead to somebody to evil, we're not to have anything to do with it. We're to abstain from the appearance. You know, it's wonderful to be enthusiastic, but it's always more acceptable when it's balanced rather than just, you know, rushing out and doing something look at verse four now she said scarcely had i passed by them speaking of the watchmen the guards when i found the one i love i held him and would not let him go until i had brought him to the house of my mother and into the chamber of her who conceived me she says she says as soon as i left so that and that again that is the watchman she says i found him and she said, I held on to him and I wouldn't let go until, you know, until I took him to my mother's house, to the place, to the room where I was born. Now, we're not told how or why Solomon was there, but he was just when she needed him the most. Especially after that embarrassing moment with the guards, after what she'd done because of her great love for him. But you know what? This is a beautiful picture of our Lord Jesus Christ. He always shows himself present to those who really love him just when they need him the most. He has his own special way of making his presence felt and of, draw, and of drawing close to us to comfort us and to cheer us up just when we need him you know, the most. And remember, that's what he did when the, with the disciples on that first resurrection Sunday. He appeared to them in the house and he said, do not fear. And he made them comfortable and he calmed their spirit. Well, she sees Solomon and she grabs him and she says, I held him and I wouldn't let go of him. And then she took him home and took him to her mother's house and into the very bedroom where she had been conceived. Her dreams about her beloved had been stirred up. Now she wants again to be intimate with him. And, and once you know, you know, once you know that you're going to be husband and wife, and, and I've seen this, when I used to uh, do a lot of uh, premarital counseling, 
there's a strong tendency to kind of loosen the restraints and drop your guard. And, and, and the young couples start to rationalize and justify their weaknesses. Hey, you know, and, and I used to see this when we do a premarital questionnaire. We'd write on there, you know, um, about you know, premarital sexual relationships. What do you feel about this? And she, they would say, oh, well, I think it's okay when you're engaged. I think it's okay if you're going to get married. I think it's okay if, if, if you're in love. And, and there was a long list of reasons why premarital sex in their eyes was okay. Because, again, we, we justify and rationalize because we want to go ahead, you know, because we're stirred up. We're in love. You know, again, we're going to get married anyway, so let's just go ahead and consummate our, our relationship now. But the Shulamite woman says, notice in verse 5, she says, I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, or I warn you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or by the does of the field. Notice, do not stir up nor awaken love until it pleases or until it's ripe or ready. She says, oh, let me warn you, daughters of Jerusalem. Let the gazelles and the does serve as witnesses. Do not excite love. Don't stir it up until the time is ripe and you are ready. Now more than ever, in the, in the, in the passion that she's feeling, it, it is the time to choose to wait for sexual fulfillment. Knowing that you're meant to be together before God and deciding to get married is one thing, but marriage vows and consummating the marriage is another. Look at verse 6. Who is this coming out of the wilderness like pillars of smoke? perfumed with myrrh and frankincense with all the merchants fragrant powders she sees this something that's coming from the desert it looks like a column of smoke fragrant with incense and myrrh and the incense that were sold by the by the traders she said, what is this who is this what is this that i'm smelling finally the day has come for the shulamite to marry her beloved king she's seen this beautiful procession coming towards her it appears on the horizon. She sees him coming for her. It's Solomon. He's being carried in this highly decorated, it's called a palanquin, palanquin, which is, you may have seen him in those old, maybe like the Ten Commandments movies. It's that portable enclosed chair. Uh, it only holds one person. It's enclosed by a, like a canopy and, and it's carried by the, the men on their shoulders with poles. And verse 7 says, it's surrounded by 60 of his bravest soldiers with a cloud of fragrant incense above him. She sees this procession coming. He's wearing a wedding crown that his mother gave him. The daughters of Jerusalem, those are her servants, her handmaids. They're excited and they sing to each other, come out to see Solomon. Come out to see King Solomon. So the bride has her attendants there, these daughters of Jerusalem and and. and the king's heart is full of joy and the time has finally come for the wedding to take place. Now, you can see the excitement. You can see the joy. You can see this. It's all coming to, uh, to, to, to place now. Her expectations are high. And again, for, for young people, your expectations should be high. You should have these great expe- expectations for the day that you get married. All right? Is it, the, is it the same wedding that God wants you to have as we see here with Solomon and the Shulamite woman? A wedding is a holy and godly moment. And again, when we look at it in Scripture, we need to look and see if this wedding of Solomon and his love, his beloved, if it lines up with what you have in mind. Look for the things of God. 
She says, who is this coming out of the wilderness like pillars of smoke? Now, what do you think of in this verse? How about the children of Israel who were led by a, a pillar of cloud in the day and by fire and by fire at night through the wilderness? It is symbolic of the Holy Spirit's leading. They understand it was God who brought them together and he was the one who was going to complete it. It's like the time that Abraham wanted to find a, a wife for um, his, uh, his son Isaac. It says in, in Genesis 24, 1 through 7, that Abraham was, was, was at the time very old. And one day Abraham said to his oldest servant, he says, I want you to swear by the Lord, God, heaven and earth. He says that you won't allow my son to marry one of these local Canaanite women. He said, I want you to go to my homeland, to my relatives. And the servant said to Abraham, well, what if I can't find a young woman who's willing to travel so far from home, you know, to leave and go with Isaac? He says to Abraham, should I then take Isaac there to live among your relatives in the land that you came from? He said, no. Be careful to never take my son there. Because the Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and my native land, solemnly promised to give this land to my descendants. And Solomon said this to his soul to serve. He says, he, God, will send an angel ahead of you. And he will see to it that you find a wife there for my son. A picture of the Holy Spirit. Going out and seeking a wife for Isaac. Samson, on the other hand, was the opposite example of this. Can you pinpoint without a doubt? You know, again, if you're engaged and, and, and if not, then, then make this a, a, a something that you look for to pinpoint uh, that the person you're going to marry without a doubt is God's choice, not yours. She says, who is it? Fragrant with myrrh and frankincense and every kind of spice. These are symbols of sweetness and joy. Myrrh, frankincense and a kind of every kind of spice. Symbols of sweetness, joy, good times. And, and a wedding should be a time of joy, a time of sweetness and happiness. There should be laughing. There should be congratulations. There should be singing going on. There shouldn't be an atmosphere. I'm sorry. There should be an atmosphere of, war, of warmth no matter what happens at the wedding. And you know, a lot of times, you know, you hear the bad things that happen at the weddings. Oh, man, you know, we ran out of food and, and the, the music was terrible and, and, and the food it was cold. And, you know, we lost, recept, we lost power at the reception hall and, and, and focusing on the wrong things. The celebration should still go on. And again, a lot of weddings are all about the music and the dancing, the food and the, and the bar and the venue, the decorations. Nothing should be more important than the love and the happiness of the bride and the groom who are getting married. Look at verses 7 and 8. Behold, she says, it is Solomon's couch with 60 valiant men around it of, of the valiant of Israel. They all hold swords, being expert in war. Every man has his sword on his thigh because of fear in the night. She says, Solomon is coming. He's being carried in his th- on his throne with 60 soldiers. As bodyguards, the finest soldiers in Israel, all of them skillful with a sword. They're battle-hardened veterans. Each of them is armed with a sword and guard against a night attack. 
In other words, this is a picture of the kind of people you want around at your wedding. Those who will protect you. Those who care for your safety. Your wedding should have a sense of security. It's not a good sign if you think there's people at your wedding who are thinking, hmm, I wonder if they're going to make it. Oh, she's in for a rough road. Oh, that guy's no good. Or taking bets. How long do you think this marriage is going to last? We need to choose godly people to surround us. Choose godly people to surround you who will totally support you in the vows that you make. People who won't let you take the easy way out. And as a whole, those who witness your marriage should keep you focused on each other and your marriage. You want people who will encourage you to work out your problems and not walk out because you have problems. To not run away. And that will do all that they can to help you when you need them, when you need that help. Verses 9 and 10. Of the wood of Lebanon, Solomon the king made himself a palanquin. He made it pillars of silver, its support of gold, its seat of purple, its interior paved by the, uh, with love by the daughters of Jerusalem. So the, she's describing now this, this, this throne, this portable throne, if you will, that, that Solomon's being carried on. She says, Solomon's carried on this throne made of the finest wood. She says, its posts are covered with silver and over it is cloth embroidered with gold. She says, its cushions are covered with purple cloth, lovingly, lovingly woven by the daughters of Jerusalem. Now, these two verses, 9 and 10, speak of strength and being established. And what it's saying here is that, ladies, the man that you marry should be a strong man and an established man. A woman wants to marry a man who's strong, but not just strong, but also who has something of real material substance to offer her. Ladies, look for a man who will show that he loves you enough to provide a place for you, financially and materially. A lot of couples today get married on sheer love and good intentions. But no job or practical plan for how they're going to live other than on hugs and kisses. No money, no place to live. You know, that, that gets old real quick. You need money for a wedding. You need money for a honeymoon. You need money to set up a place to live and for the children you plan to have. But unfortunately, there's a lot of young women today that, that get connected with a guy who can't support them. Can't take care of them. The income for a family is biblically described here, the man's responsibility. And again, I know a lot of women who are working these days. And, and we're going to look at this in more detail when you get to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, when it's all about marriage. Should, should the wife work? Should she stay home? But again, it's, it's not that cut and dry, but there are some uh, things that we're going to look at when we get to 1 Corinthians 7. The primary responsibility for earning the money required for a family still belongs to the man. And as we've seen, there are too many men that are not stepping up to the plate and accepting that responsibility. And there are too many men who expect their, wife, expect their wives to either earn some of the family money income, some family income, or give their full support after they're married. And again, there, there's, there's more to it than just that. And we'll cover that. But I remember, again, when I was doing marriage counseling, 
You know, the the, the woman felt moved to stay home and take care of the children, which I believe is her primary responsibility in marriage, is to be the mom and taking care of the home. But he wants the toys. He wants her to work so he can have a a, a sea-doo or a motorcycle or whatever it is. You know, wrong wrong ideas, wrong thinking. Um, Again, it's the family that is so important and that God has ordained us to take care of. So, again, ladies, if that's the case, it's wiser to wait until the man can take care of you and support the family. And I've seen a lot of that over the years. Helping short term now, like I said, for the right reason is okay. If necessary, again, due to illness or injury or health, you know, or layoff, those things that are unforeseen. All right, that's understandable. And, and, and you know what, guys, we don't have to, we don't have to get rich to be, be rich to get married. But if we will, you know, if we'll provide for her the best that we can of our ability and with our faith in God, it will result in having enough. God always makes it enough. A man with this strength and mindset is ready to take on all the responsibilities of marriage and family with the deep assurance that you want to and you can provide for your wife. Verse 11. Go forth, O daughters of Zion, and see King Solomon with the crown with which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding, the day of the gladness of his heart. The Shulamite woman says to the daughters of Zion, or to her, her, her servants, she said, come and see King Solomon. He's wearing the crown that his mother placed on his head on his wedding day, on the day of his gladness and joy. The icing on the cake to a great wedding is knowing that your parents approve of the one that you married. Solomon's mother crowned him with a wedding crown that a groom wore in those days. And the crown said symbolically that his mother approved of his bride and she would value and love his wife like a daughter. The only thing that really makes it possible for the parents to let their child go in marriage is knowing and believing the marriage is God's plan. That it's God's plan. Again, the parents' approval of the man or the woman their child is marrying is really important to the family's overall happiness and also to the couple getting married. You know, if you, if you get the cold shoulder or maybe some resistance or you feel the slightest discomfort between, you know, your future spouse and in-laws, there might be something going on that, that will be trouble ahead. Find out what that's about. Find out why there's this discomfort. Find out what unsettled issues there might be or, or, and try to get them solved before going on any further. Because again, your wedding day should be a great experience. A day of splendor. Solomon and the Shulamite woman have done things right here. From chapter 1 to this point, they have done all things right. So he feels... Like everything is wonderful. And you know what? That's the way you should feel too. And you can make it happen by making the right plans and the right preparations while you are dating. You want to look back at your wedding day and you want to say how wonderful it was. Remember the parable of the wedding feast? Jesus said in Matthew 22, 2 through 4, Tell those who are invited, See, notice, I have prepared my dinner. I have prepared my oxen and I have prepared my fatted cattle. They are killed. All things are ready. Come 
to the wedding. And that's the way that we should feel. All things are ready. We have prepared. We have planned. And now, come to the wedding. Again, your wedding day should be a day of love, a day of joy and wonderful romance and intimate thoughts and feelings that can't be expressed. But it's only by following God's plan and will for you. Can you experience that kind of a wedding? Father, we thank you for your word, Lord. We thank you for this amazing little book, God, tucked in here between uh, these pages of, of Scripture, Lord. Father, help us. God, again, we're never too old to learn new things, Lord. Even though we might have been married for, we've been married for years, Lord, there are still wonderful nuggets, great treasure in this book, God, that we can claim and that we can, we can apply to our marriage, Lord. Help us to never think we're too old to learn or, or that we've reached a place where we know it all, God. Because in, in Christ, we, we, we know nothing. It's him that we know, like Paul said. I just want to know him and the power of his resurrection. So, Father, help us to be open to your word. Help us to be in tune with your spirit, God. And, Lord, may we take these principles and these things in, in Scripture and apply them, God. And, again, watch how they will change and turn things around, Lord. Your word does that so well. It transforms, God. It makes new. And so, Father, we look to you now. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for this wonderful book, this, this, this marriage manual, Father, that you left for us, Lord. So, Father, again, bless, bless your people as they go their way, Father. And um, just, again, bring us back together and, and, uh, on Wednesday, God, to hear more of your wonderful word, God. We thank you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.